dream, Neo, that you were so sure was real? What if you were unable to wake from that dream? How would you know the difference between the dream world and the real world? What is happening to me? The answer is out there, Neo. It's the question that drives us. What is the Matrix? The Matrix is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. What truth? They're watching you, Neo. Human beings are a disease. You are a cancer of this planet. And we are the cure. Get me the hell out of here! Welcome to the real world. Hello everybody and welcome again to the Good Trash Genre Cast, where a bunch of guys gather around a table and they do film studies type stuff, scholarship on movies that will never be found in a film studies classroom. We are bereft and uh, bereaved missing Mr. Arthur Gordon this week, however, we have an excellent guest host tonight. Sir, to my left, if you could introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Nick Sanford. Uh, I did not go to college. I make movies, and I just turned 25 yesterday. All of those statements are true. Thank you very much, Mr. Nick Sanford. To my right, sir, if you introduce yourself. My name is Dalton Stewart, and I know Kung Fu. Finally, that's my... not true. <laughs> that's actually not true. That's at all. not true at all. My name is Dustin Sells. Hi, Dustin. And I would have taken the blue pill. And let's move right on into talking about the movie this week, which is The Matrix. It made some waves. It's a movie of some small significance. And we're going to talk about that because we're going to do Mondo Blockbusters for summer all this month. And uh, we're very, very excited to do that. Before we get into the show, what we want to warn you, dear listeners, this is not a review show. It's an analysis show, which means there will be much spoilerific spoilerage that will come on out towards the end of the show. Before that, though, we begin with a quick synopsis and our, our we begin with a quick synopsis and our quick reviews, just to give you an idea of what we think about the movie. And if you wish to pause before seeing the Matrix, having somehow lived, why under, have you not seen the Matrix yet? You have a problem. Punch you, yourself in the mouth. You need to see the Matrix right now, and then you can find out how it all ends when. It turns out the Matrix is a bobsled. But we'll talk more about that towards the end of the show. We'll begin now, though, in our review section with the voice of the Dollar Theater, <laughs> Mr. Nick Sanford. A computer hacker learns from mysterious rebels about the true nature of his reality and his role in the war against his controllers. All of that is accurate and very, very vague, as <laughs> many times synopses are. Well, let's begin with those reviews. Do we like this movie or not? I think this should be fairly succinct because I'm sure we all do. Mr. Dalton Stewart, what do you say? It's totes bitchin'. I like it a lot. Um, it's on my shelf already. What, what more do you want? It's changed my life. It's a five stars out of five stars out of 12 trash cans out of 12 trash cans. I love The Matrix. I literally watched it twice in the course of two days just because I had an excuse to because we were doing this episode. I think it is infinitely fun, infinitely quotable, and it's just such... 
a huge moment in cinema and was such a huge moment in my life uh, both more importantly and less importantly I think but uh, you know if you have you seen The Matrix then you know why it's awesome enjoy very good thank you much Mr. Dalton Stewart Mr. Nick Sanford what do you say I like it almost as much as Dalton I mean I didn't grow up watching it but uh, seeing it recently I saw it last October with Dalton um, on the big screen and it was the first time I'd watched it in several years and that's when I got it that's when I was like oh I understand why virgins and non-virgins alike are going crazy over this and that's when it kind of I realized how inspirational it was and actually it was one of the first it was basically the first R-rated movie I ever saw I uh, went to my cousin's house in late 99 and my mom said you can rent all the R-rated movies you want this weekend and so we rented The Matrix, Saving Private Ryan, Enemy of the State, Starship Troopers, and The Blair Witch Project. So it's I watched the best weekend ever. <laughs> all of right. those in one weekend. It's the best weekend ever. Ten years old, and that's why I am the way I am now. It explains so much. Thank you very and much. That's because of the Blair Witch Project, I assume that he just didn't catch any of the Matrix as a nine-year-old. Yeah, I was very confused. I was ten. I was. When I was Nine? My brain fell out of my butt the first time I watched I was, this movie. I was way too stupid to understand it. <laughs> just, a very, it's a, it's just a, a very dumb fourth grader. It took me a long time before I before I started getting it, but now I get it. Well, Dustin Sells, where do you come down on this? Say uh, you what. I, again, would say that this movie is merely a masterpiece. I mean, it's absolutely fantastic. It, it does kind of suffer from a little bit of fuzzy pacing. The exposition bits of Morpheus in the red chair do take a bit longer than maybe they absolutely had to. However, they are necessary to the plot, so I'm not sure what they could have done differently. But as far as just, you know, the pure cinematic critic review sort of thing, I have to say, okay, there are moments there where I'm going, hmm, I'm not so sure. And then I did find myself caring very little about what went on in the blue world of the real world and much more about wanting them to hurry up and get back to that green matrix world. And so there was some, there's something there in, in the genetic tapestry that, that lacks, I guess. But, I mean, I'm just trying to say something negative at all to just show that we're not just gushy fanboys. Yeah, I, I, I love it. I love it tons. I really do. I mean, I would give it 19 out of 20 trash cans. I mean, I, I'm Ke- saying it's very high percentage. Ke- Keanu yes. Reeves, as always, has a very flat affectation, but, I mean, even that kind of works. perfect for this. Exactly. It, much like Arnold in T2, it was like the, the role he was born for. So yeah. I just can't. All right, guys, thank you very much for that. Let's move on into our analysis. I begin with you, Mr. Nick Sanford. What analysis bring you, sir? I think uh, I want to talk not exclusively about this film, but the year in which it came out, 1999, which is what I like to call the year we questioned our world. Um, 1999 had many films, The Matrix kind of being the, uh, I don't want to say ringleader, but kind of the one that sort of sticks out the most about uh, films about people who are either not happy with their identity or are confused about their perception of the world or something to that effect. We had American Beauty, which came out several months after The Matrix, which is about a man who's not satisfied with his own identity, so he tries to create a new one. Um, We've got Bringing Out the Dead, which is a spiritual film about Nicolas Cage's character questioning why good things happen to bad people and vice versa. We had Office Space, which is, again, about a man fighting the banality of his own existence. The Sixth Sense, which is about a man literally discovering he's a ghost, so he's discovering something about his, you know, 
his perception and all that. Uh, Magnolia, which is the viewer looking for meaning in the world of the actual film, not necessarily the characters themselves, but I think that's interesting that that's what was on people's minds, filmmakers particularly, at the end of the late 90s, when stuff like the internet was becoming most readily available. I think 1998, I can remember everyone, at least one person per street in any given neighborhood had the internet, and that's when... I think there was a lot of anxiety about identity then. Uh, I don't remember a whole lot because I was 10, but from what I, you know, looking back at it now and sort of setting late 90s culture, there was, you know, identity crisis, and so we could connect into the internet and literally become anyone we wanted to in chat rooms, for better or worse. And I just think it's interesting that films reflected that. And I think if you're going to do a, uh, a holy trinity of uh, 1999, Film-wise, I think you would pick Office Space, American Beauty, and The Matrix because those are three films in which office drones strike back. Mm. I think there's something to be said about that. I don't know what, because I'm stupid and didn't go to college, but that's what I got. I like all those things. There's yeah. also another movie about an office drone striking back. It came out in 1999. What? But I'm not going to talk about it because I'm not allowed to. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was going to say that, and I completely forgot. You can Fight say Club. It. Fight Club. Yeah, I can't. Again, <laughs> about a crazy person who's not happy with himself, so he has to create another self. Happens. So now that's all I have. Sounds a lot like the rest of those movies. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Nick Sanford. And 1999 has been talked about as the year that changed movies. And, and that is a major uh, stream in the zeitgeist of that particular time. And I think... Uh, that's that's very very wise and astute observation that you're making there, sir, Mr. Dalton Stewart. What observation and analysis bring you? Well, I want to talk about a couple of things, if if you'll indulge me. I, I gotta I gotta tell you about one thing so I can talk about another thing. Okay. So back, way back, way way back, in ancient Greece, there was this dude named Socrates, and he had this buddy named Plato. I'm kidding. This is Socrates. Who I said was visited by Keanu Reeves. Yes. Socrates was visited <laughs> by Keanu Reeves in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. But before that happened, he had this teacher named Plato. And Plato didn't write anything down because Plato was like, writing's bullshit. I only like to talk. So Socrates had the foresight to go ahead and write some of it down. Plato was a podcaster. Yeah. So what happened was Plato told this story. And it was a bit of a parable. It's called the Allegory of the Cave. And he proposed this this fiction in which there's this cave. And there are people chained to the wall of the cave. Or cha just chained so they can only look forward. Behind them is this kind of like walkway where people can walk behind them. And they're holding shapes like of cats in trees and chairs and vases and stuff. Behind those people is a big-ass fire. So, the big-ass fire creates a shadow of these objects on the opposite wall of the cave. So, the people chained in the cave who, in this allegory, have been in the cave their entire life. All they know is the cave. Their reality is these shapes parading in front of them. And they say, that is what a cat looks like. That is what a tree looks like. That is what a jackalope looks like. Now, presume one day somebody gets out of their chains and they get out of the cave and they see the real world and they see 
Whoa, that's what a tree looks like. Oh, man. That's what a cat looks like? No way. I just thought it was a stiff, you know, little shape that didn't really move a whole lot. And then the person goes back to the cave and tries to tell the other people that are chained in the cave, Hey, man, did you know this is all a lie? And the other people in the cave are like, Get out of here, man. You crazy. Now, I tell you that story because that's basically the plot of The Matrix. And when I say basically, I mean it is literally the plot of The Matrix. Neo is shackled into this reality that turns out isn't actually reality. It just happens to look like what our reality was in 1999, so we kind of accept it as fact unless we saw the trailers for The Matrix and then we know something else is probably happening here. But, not important. What is important is this idea that when you take someone and force them to reevaluate what they think the world looks like, they will meet resistance. I tell you that to tell you this. If you've listened to this show before, you've probably heard me talk about the sociological imagination. Now, what the sociological imagination is, is this idea that was presented by C. Wright Mills, who was an OG sociologist. And basically, what he said was that the most basic, most fundamental, most important thing of sociology is that you can conceive of a universe, can conceive of a life and a reality that is different from your own. Now he says this because the point he was getting at is you can't just look at a person and say what their life is. You have to look at the historical context of their life, the social context of their life, to really understand what their life looks like. So, when you start to try and look at other people's lives, and take into account the context of their life, you start to see that the reality that you had previously conceived of looks a lot different. And when you try to tell someone that the people they're looking at are not really what they think they're seeing, when you try to tell someone, that's one opinion that you have of this person, but have you considered X, Y, and Z, which is what the actual day-to-day routine of their life is, you're probably going to be met with hostility. Now, I don't mean they're going to put on sunglasses and, you know, pull out a gun and, you know, try to shoot you. That was an Agent Smith reference. Um, You know, no no chasing and jumping into the body of an old lady and then throwing a knife at you. But they're probably going to meet you with some resistance because you are challenging the fundamental... Presupposition? Thank you. You are challenging the fundamental presuppositions on which they have built their reality. So when you go to the cave, when you go to the person who hasn't really considered life from any eyes except their own, when you go to the unenlightened as an enlightened person, you will meet resistance. And that is what the Matrix asks us, is one, consider that your reality is not what you think it to be. And two, take the time to do the dangerous thing and go and tell someone else what you saw. What's the point of finding out the cave's a lie? if you're not going to tell anyone else about it. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. That was excellent. You are very welcome. I do want to give a brief shout-out to an um, author on sociologyinfocus.com by the name of Kimberly Kaiswetter. I hope I'm saying that right. Uh, just doing a, in preparation for doing this episode, I did, did just, you know, I was like, well, let's Google sociology in the Matrix and see what happens. Because I was just going to talk about Plato's Allegory of the Cave. Uh, and what that means. And, and that was the first time I'd even considered uh, connecting the sociological imagination to the Matrix. And it's a very good article. Uh, I recommend it. Uh, and 
a lot of those ideas kind of cemented what I wanted to talk about, so I want to thank her for that. Um, but yeah, go watch The Matrix. Learn something, kids. Excellent, excellent. Uh, the analysis that I would want to bring is uh, something in discussion of psychoanalysis and also Marxism, but really applying it to a very, very specific issue of violence in this particular film and Columbine and the use of violence in rebellion. As you may know, in March the movie was released. In April, um, the following month, there was a uh, mass shooting at Columbine and uh, in Colorado. And this movie had su suffered some uh, delays in its uh, DVD release as a result because Neo wore a trench coat and the, they were the, the, the two killers were members of a little group clique at their school called the Trench Coat Mafia. And this film is kind of talked, talked about in terms of inciting violence, inciting the sort of uh, rebellion against authority and massacring police officers, which happens in the uh, bottom floor of that lobby scene with Trinity and Neo doing some really amazing kung fu. And what I want to talk about is that this film is not about using real physical violence because of the way it's structured. The way the film is structured is, in a very Lacanian sense, is within the symbolic order. Now for Lacan, there are three orders. There's imaginary, which is the construction of the self, the real, which is just the encounter of that which is outside the self, and the symbolic, and that's how you begin to understand all of this stuff outside the self. And the symbolic is always used to describe by language, except for you don't get to describe the real with language on your own because language precedes you, and so language is actually foisted upon you, and is in, in some ways it limits your abilities to describe and understand the world around you. You're told you're a boy, you like blue, you like trucks, those sort of things. So part of how we understand gender is tied up with uh, the symbolic order. Now the matrix is a, a manifestation of that sort of symbolic order that is used to repress uh, the human beings that are caught up in the matrix. Now, interestingly enough, when Neo gets into the real world, there is another symbolic order that's being constructed, and it's part of what Cypher's rebelling against, that there is the world of this army and this revolution and rebellion against the machine world, and he's upset because the only thing he gets to do now is not really freedom. He only does what Morpheus wants him to do. And so there, there is still symbolic order. There's still sort of this language and issues of control and, and, and demarcations because it turns out the real itself is something that's never totally symbolizable, Lacan would say, that there's always a remainder thereafter. And when you encounter something that does not fit within your symbolic order, you have a traumatic break, which is exactly what happens to Neo in the second film when he realizes his power to manipulate reality does not only happen in the Matrix, it also happens in the real world, and he stops the Sentinels at the very last scene and passes out, if you recall. And so that's, again, that's an encounter with the real, and he's unable to, to house that within language, and he goes into his coma. And uh, now what's going on though is the division between the worlds that we just treat the matrix however as just the symbolic order and just that realm. What it becomes is a realm of the mind. It's green tinted to make us know the difference between that world and of course the blue world of the real world is something of a realm of the body. That's part of what Smith does and again in the second film when he ends up inside the body of Bane. It's a realm of, you know, in the Greek sense, sarks, the flesh. And that's a different Bane than the Bane you're thinking of. No, he does. Um... <laughs> there, are, there are no mobile bombs. It's, it's a totally different guy. <laughs> it's a hacker name this time. And in, in, in that world of ideas, 
where there is all of this command and control, where there is all of this repression, where there is all of this attempt to make sure that these servant classes, and all humanity is basically a servant class at this point, this is where it gets a little Marxist, is being exploited for uh, what they can provide and not compensated accordingly, that you need to rebel against that and find some way to break yourself free of those shackles. However, the warfare is a warfare of the mind. It is, the, it is a battle of ideas that's going on in the Matrix. That's part of what the, the Oracle is fighting along with Seraph, the very, very cool Kung Fu man in the second and third film. Yeah, he's very cool. <laughs> he's pretty bad. And uh, we enjoy all of that. But all of these battles are mind sorts of battles, which ends up being one, and again, I'm going to refer to the last film now, when Neo does not resist any longer and allows Smith to basically do to him what he did to Smith in the film that we encountered uh, for this week's show, and by his nonviolent resistance is able to overcome and neutralize all of those sorts of weapons. It, it's an intellectual battle that's being encouraged. I, I think again about another film that is uh, sometimes cited in terms of school violence, Lindsay Anderson's If uh, from uh, the, the late 60s at 1A, uh, Palme d'Or. And there's a, there's a shooting at the end, but the movie's all surreal and very strange and weird from time to time. And, and, and the most uh, ridiculous, the most comedic, the most clearly non-realistic events take place during this massive shooting where a couple students get up on top of the building and shoot people as they come out of a chapel that they've lit on fire. It's, it's terrifying, right? But it's also utterly ridiculous the way it's set up because Lindy Anderson is not suggesting that students somehow work assassination programs against their headmasters. He's actually saying we need to resist mentally. We need to resist by pointing out the absurdities. We need to resist by saying there's something else that can be done and by pointing out the suffering, by pointing out the exploitation and the ens the enslavement of others and then do something about it. Uh, surrealist writers, and I think surrealism is a great place of commentary for this particular film because it does combine psychoanalysis to an extent, it does combine Marx to an extent, and there are these sort of multiple worlds that interpenetrate one another, which sounds fundamentally what the, fundamentally what the surrealists were all about. Uh, and they were sometimes cited as these sort of scary people. Louis Bunuel said of Lodge Door and of Unchien Andalou, his first two films, that he wanted to do them as movies that were like shooting a gun into a crowded room. And uh, that uh, the first film was a impassioned plea to murder, the sort of high hyperbolic kind of language. And later on, um, Andre Breton, the kind of godfather of the uh, Surrealist movement, would talk about how, yes, we say those sort of things, but we're talking about spiritual weapons. We're talking about using cinema. We're talking about using ideas to cause sort of a violent break, to force an encounter with the real, with the remainder that is not really symbolized in the way the structure that's been set up in this world, the matrix of meaning that the world of language and of rules and institutions and structures is trying to form around us in order to control us, to force a rupture, which will feel violent, like Dalton said about that encounter with the sociological imagination. It will feel like an act of violence and that way bring about change. They're not actually advocating blowing up airports and bridges, etc. That said, it does look totes bitching when they do it. Well, and, and the Wachowskis know to whom yeah. they're selling this movie, don't For they? For sure. And so, but what I want to say is the violence of this film, it, I mean, I, I totally understand how if you're 19 and seeing this movie or, or whatever, you know, you think, oh, this is what it means. We all need to get guns and kill everybody. But that's clearly not what the movie's actually doing. 
what the film was doing instead, it seems to me, is is setting up a sort of uh, ideological warfare, which is a much more dangerous thing because it actually changes stuff. Because we can move all the political boundaries all we want and play chess in different ways and move the risk table here and there. But when you start talking about changing the ideas, that's when things start getting upset. And I find that to be very fascinating and why this film is really, really valuable. What he said. Now we move to time <laughs> where we are able to give our verdict. Thank you, gentlemen, so much for that analysis. But now you must choose. And this movie is ubiquitous. It's so thick in the culture. And is it truly worthy of the shelf or the trash? I ask you to choose, gentlemen. You must choose. But choose wisely. Dalton Stewart, you get to choose first. I already answered you way earlier. Yes, it's on the shelf. It's already on the shelf. It should always be on the shelf. And what else were instead, sir? Well, give me a moment and I'll tell you. Uh, I think you should check out the Wachowskis' uh, siblings' very first film, uh, Bound, uh, which has also got Joey Pants in it. Uh, and it has uh, Jennifer Tilly and Jennifer Gershon. Uh, it, it's really a standard uh, neo-noir thriller, uh, but instead the... Uh, the tough guy from out of town who steals the mobster's girlfriend is a tough girl from out of town that steals the mobster's girlfriend, uh, and bad shit ensues. Uh, and you can see, even before The Matrix, they're kind of laying this groundwork of doing something different with familiar genres. Uh, and it's a really, you know, it's an underappreciated film. I think people are aware of it just because the Wachowskis. Uh, but it's it's a film I dig a lot. I think it's really, really just a solid neo-noir thriller that I, I would definitely recommend you check out. Um, also, if you're looking at the films of 95 to 99, you're looking at all these films really from 97 to 99, the 13th Floor Existence, all these other films that are basically precursors to The Matrix, all these films being written and released around the same time. Uh, I think Existence and the 13th Floor are kind of crappy, but you should definitely check out uh, Alex Proyas' Dark City, which is awesome and is like The Matrix, but with less kung fu. That was one of my recommends, actually. I was looking things up on the interwebs, mm -hmm. and I saw this sort of stylistic similarity between the two. Turns mm -hmm. out the rooftop sets mm -hmm. of uh, Dark City were used in the Matrix. That opening scene? Yeah, they are actually project. from that movie. That's and, awesome. Yeah, it makes me happy. That is pretty cool. Also, if you're going to watch a 90s Alex Proyas film, you should also just watch The Crow, too. Because awesome. Because visually and you know, kung fu and interesting things being said, uh, and also dark and gritty in 90s. Um, you should also watch the Animatrix, because I think it's really cool and not uh, seen enough. And you should watch the second two Matrix films, because everybody's been on this high horse about how shitty they are. and They're not as good as the first Matrix film, uh, but you know what? I think there's something valuable in those films as well. I think Dustin presented a pretty good argument for why you should watch all three films, because uh, you're missing a, a little bit of what the Wachowskis were trying to get at, other than just cribbing your freshman uh, philosophy class. They were actually trying to maybe say something of their own. Uh, that you should check out. Finally, if you want a, another drone striking back film, but striking back with cool shootouts, watch Wanted. Uh, it's not very good, but it's a whole hell of a lot of fun, so do that. Those are my else's. Well, 35 hours later, dear listener, you, after you've watched those movies... I just started writing <laughs> down movies and couldn't stop. I'm sorry. You can look into Mr. Nick Sanford's else's or instead as he gives us the shelf or the trash. Um, shelf definitely. I think it's. I think The Matrix is one of the most important science fiction films ever made. Possibly top five. I dare say. I put it right up there with 2001: Space Odyssey, Metropolis, Blade Runner, uh, 
The Happening is some of the greatest sci-fi films <laughs> and some of the most important and thought-provoking science fiction films ever. Some of those might be minority picks. <laughs> no, um, but uh, my else, this is a weird one, you're going to have to go with me on this, Titanic. I say that, <laughs> you get that face, I say that because this, because Titanic, like The Matrix, is a film about a mentally repressed person who is shackled but feels there is something else out there and then someone comes along to liberate them and they by the end of the film are transformed symbolically physically mentally everything into a much better more expansive version of themselves huh I, you know Good your tics. logic is sound sir. set out across a vast spectacle only, unfortunately, Morpheus doesn't bang Neo in a car. <laughs> if only. <laughs> if only. Wow. That might be a deleted scene, too, though. I don't know. You never know. Well, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Nick Sanford. Oh, I was going to say something else. Sorry. Uh, you said uh, the sets from Dark City were used hey, in Yes. Dustin did tell you that. that. You said that. Uh, I was reading today that um, Warner Brothers, when the Wachowskis were picked pitching the Matrix, they said uh, what's the budget for this? The Wachowski said 80 million. Warner Brothers said, hell no, we're going to give you 10 million instead to make the entire movie. So what they did is they played Russian roulette big time, spent the first 10 minutes, or the first, or they spent the entire 10 million dollars on about the first 10 minutes, the whole Trinity escape thing all the way up to the phone. And based on that, they said, we'll go ahead and give you 70 more million so you can finish this, which is yeah. pretty ballsy. It is but, very. Well, it's... But the only difference between ballsy and stupid is outcome. That's why the first 10 minutes of this feels like its own short film, because it is. Mm -hmm. I've heard that before, yeah. And that's something I really love about the prologue of this film, is that it is very self-contained mm -hmm. in, in a way that's kind of awesome. It is awesome. I love it. Well, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Nick Sanford. That was excellent and a very well-reasoned Titanic argument. Uh, no, I, I'm serious. No, I, I, I agree. Yeah. Fantastic. Dustin sells else shelf or trash Elser instead. In fact, as we announced that we were going to do this movie, I went ahead and bought the ultimate edition of all three films: the Animatrix the and all the, the big Blu-ray set. Awesome. And it was pretty. And uh, so, yes, shelf, absolutely shelf. I echo Dalton Stewart's recommendation of Dark City. I'm going to tell you right now, listener, if you haven't watched this film on Blu-ray, you're missing out because the 99 DVD print of this compared to that Blu-ray is garbage. That's what belongs in the trash. <laughs> Well, there's an interesting change because the color tinting, they didn't quite match it in the original release because they weren't even sure they were going to get two other sequels. And so um, they've, they've actually gone back and color corrected it so it really matches the aesthetic of the next two films. And it's, it's excellent. And also it's just super crispy looking. Yes. So anyway, other than Dark City, what else would you... I think Total Recall, the original with Arnie um, and directed by Paul Verhoeven, is again the story of differences of realities and what's going on and there is this sort of repressed uh, proletarian society with cheap domes and Mars and uh, I, I think that that film actually says quite a lot about what's going on inside uh, the film The Matrix and so I find that interesting and of course Blade Runner Blade Runner just seems to be the precursor to this that whole the future is going somewhere but somehow it gets shabbier it gets worse even though things have sort of mm. uh, moved forward much of the infrastructure has failed to do so which I think is prescient but I won't get into all of that right now but also your life is a lie 
and also that sort of identity sort of wrestling that is a, a major bit of questioning that goes on with it. It's, Philip K. Dick is clearly, read all his stuff. Oh, absolutely. I think it is what you should do to pair this with The Matrix. And gentlemen, we have given the dear listeners some excellent homework right now. There's a lot of good stuff to be looking at and a lot of stuff to look at in terms of The Matrix that help you think through your viewing. That's why we do these else's or instead's. It's not just about, hey, here's something else that's sort of like that. It's sort of directed by some of the same people. It's also about helping you to think about another film in perhaps new and amazing ways as I'm going to just go ahead and brag on him, Mr. Nick Sanford just did with Titanic. And so there's some Something going on there, and of course, I think the other picks that we gave do the same things as well. Well, let's move on and talk about the opportunity we have to keep the conversation going because it's not just about three guys around a table, it's about the conversation with you all through the magical means known as social media. Mr. Dalton Stewart, do you know anything about social media and ways in which the conversation can keep on going? Dustin, don't try to bend the internet, that's impossible. Instead, only try to realize the truth. There is no internet. Then you'll see it is not the internet that bends. It is only Twitter. Ladies and gentlemen, you can find the Good Trash Genre Cast on Twitter at good underscore trash, which seems like a logical place to find us, seeing as how it is the first half of our name. Um, really, in the way of feedback coming in from the Twitter, if you can't tell, listener, I don't quite have it pulled up yet, so I'm stalling for time, like a juggler, a crusty juggler. Um, we, we do have a little bit of feedback. Uh, what I can only say, an inundation of retweets and favorites this week, which is something that, uh, you know, I, I joke about how useless that is to us, um, but it is pretty fabulous. Um, we got a couple of new followers uh, which was really great. Um, and Brigham Cole gave us a link uh, to a article um, about a Marine who, who wrote a story, a, a man by the name of Max Uron. I can't say his name. He wrote uh, and created this kind of satirical comic strip called Terminal Lance, which is about how crappy being in the Marines is. This Marine and, uh, and uh, comic book author is working on a graphic novel that's a semi-autobiographical account of his experiences uh, uh, during the war. Um, and it, it seems really interesting. I retweeted that link, so thank you for that, uh, as always, Brim Cole. And um, really, that's all I've, I've got to share with you guys coming in from the Twitter this week. I will say one thing. Uh, I'm happy that we got some retweets for our Good Trash Du Cinema uh, spinoff episode uh, over uh, <laughs> Leo Carras' Holy Motors which uh, is a really great episode of our show that I, I recommend you check out. If you're not familiar, The Good Trash Do Cinema is our <laughs> spinoff show where instead of watching cult and genre films and films you typically wouldn't see discussed in a film studies course, although you might see The Matrix pop up in one, um, it, we, we try to focus really on, on world cinema and art cinema uh, and films that you should not be surprised to have a professor telling you is important. Uh, so we, we checked out Holy Motors, and man, uh, it's a it's a heck of a film, and uh, we had a lot of fun talking about it. So I, I liked seeing so many retweets to our link of that episode. That was really nice. Thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Of course, you can follow us at Facebook.com. That's Facebook.com forward slash Good Trash Genre Cast. One word, as Arthur Gordon so eloquently says it. You can also subscribe on iTunes if you give us a rating. We asked for five stars, but we realized we're probably not living up to that. 
But uh, any review that you write, we will read on the air. Follow us on Stitcher Internet Radio. Of course, we're hosted at podbean.com, and you can find us there as well. And we want to keep the conversation going. Oh, also, check us out. We're Tumbling. We're on Tumblr. So that's goodtrashhonorcast.tumblr.com. And there, I thank you so much for the new follows and new likes and the new subscriptions. There are several of you on several of those platforms. And we thank you for you for all of that and all of your... Uh, <laughs> All of your followership, we enjoy having you around, and we hope to keep the conversation going with y'all. Gentlemen, I think now it's time for us to keep the conversation going, because it's time to play the game. Time to play the game. Time to play the game! This week's game is about what the Matrix did to cinema. It blew it up. It blew the doors off. Everything afterward was affected by it. It somehow took up all the threads of what had been going on before because it definitely looks backwards and then did something with it and caused every film moving forward to have to look back and take the Matrix into account when they made films. And films that did not do so in early 2000, 2001 looked horribly dated because of their lack of interest, their lack of reckoning with the force of nature that was The Matrix. And so we want to talk about these force of nature movies and either major just cinema films or films in, in genres that really kind of changed everything. And so this is sort of our recommends for game-changing cinema. I ask you first, Mr. Nick Sanford, what say you? Uh, I got a few obvious ones. 2001 A Space Odyssey, obviously blew the butt off of Hollywood. I just said butt. Uh, Jurassic Park, I think, would be a good one. Cause that, that major means, CGI film, yeah. Yeah. I mean, even more so than Terminator. Everyone always says Terminator was the first major Hollywood film to utilize But they CGI. didn't use real-world things, though. And not that dinosaurs yeah. exist in the real world, but they looked like they should. Yes, exactly. Yeah. They were animals, yeah. Yeah, yeah, living creatures. T-1000 doesn't count. Although it still looks good because of the simplicity. Yeah. Oh, it's awesome. I mean, it's yeah. definitely... But it's not, it's not yeah. dinosaurs running and yeah. picking, Whole interacting ball. with humans. And Whole different ballgame, I photo agree. Photoreal CGI. Exactly, there you go. Yeah. Um, Star Wars, I think, uh, is a big game changer in many ways. Absolutely. Jaws. I like all of those picks. Thank you very much, Mr. Nick Sanford. What are your game-changing recommends? Well, I got a couple. Uh, one of the first ones that came to mind for me was Easy Rider, uh, 1967, I always forget, um, just really drop-kicked Hollywood and said, uh, let filmmakers say, we don't need you anymore. We can make movies that say something interesting, do, do controversial and in-your-face things, and make gigantic, big-ass piles of money. Easy Rider did all of those things, which is not, again, it's not only a feat that it was an artistic success, but also a commercial success. People came out in droves to see a movie that literally is just Peter Fonda and Dennis Hopper smoking pot, riding motorcycles, and hanging out with Jack Nicholson. That's all Before that happens. He gets the shit beat out of him and dies. Oh, that's really sad. That's all that happens in the movie. Mm-hmm. But it's about the American dream, oddly, which is just fascinating that this is a pretty nonlinear um non-traditional narrative film that uh, people came out in droves to see and made money and that's really awesome I think. Uh, I would also say that Sam Raimi's Spider-Man is really a game changer and here's why. It doesn't do anything that any blockbuster hadn't done before it. Correct. What it did though was set the tone for 12 years and counting of blockbusters to come. 
Now, a lot of people say X-Men, and X-Men did okay. And a lot of people say, well, what about Blade? What about Batman? All these other superhero films before it. Spider-Man took comic books and made a comic book movie that was so still, like, one, true to the source material, and two, Spider-Man, in case you've forgotten, destroyed every box office record in existence at the time. Destroyed it. And every superhero movie, for about the next eight years at least basically followed that same model of the first Spider-Man receives powers dicks around with powers learns that that's a bad idea takes power seriously has a lot of fun with powers girlfriend's in danger takes power even more seriously saves the day that is the tone of basically all superhero movies following Spider-Man for a while um, and that's something that's very interesting. And again, it, it gave these studios the impetus to start really making a lot of superhero movies for both good and ill. I think this has been for both good and bad. I honestly do. Um, but it definitely, I mean, the landscape was totally changed by Sam Raimi, who was this beloved fanboy genre director, getting attached to one of the biggest characters of all time. And, uh, I mean think about what follows after that. You get Chris Nolan, who is known for Memento, this kind of sleeper indie thriller, and gets attached to Batman. I mean, and this is kind of the tone of big blockbusters since then. Um, I mean, we've got Ryan Johnson attached to the new Star Wars, the Star Wars Episode 8, as we talked about last week. Uh, I mean, this is kind of Matt Reeves, who did Cloverfield, which, despite being so CGI-heavy, was actually a fairly low-budget film, uh, and did, you know, a remake of an obscure Swedish vampire movie, is making... Uh, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. I mean, this is this catching these up-and-coming genre directors young and early and putting them on these big tentpole features uh, is something that has been hugely influential by Spider-Man, not the least of all, again, as we've already said, all the damn comic book movies. 89 Batman kind of did that. Well, and again, it, it's... I, 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 I named, In terms of taking a Yeah, a director. genre director. I name-checked it for a reason, but I think Spider-Man did it in such a way that's just completely changed the groundwork of mainstream Hollywood cinema. Well, I think the 89 Batman, I was going to mention that and I forgot to, and then you saying Spider-Man made me want to mention that, is that was the first predetermined blockbuster ever. That's a good point. Yeah. If any other, like Jaws was an accidental, Star Wars, I didn't know that was going to be what it was, but Warner Brothers made sure that Batman was going to be the, just blow the dip off of the, all the box office things. And it was the first movie, it made so much money in the first month, and it just went, in a way that, basically all movies do now. That's a good point, yeah. Very the, exceptional ones. The pre-packaged blockbuster. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And I still like that movie a lot, but I was reading a uh, 25th anniversary retrospective essay or article, whatever, about it, and I was like, that's really interesting. Clerks was the other one I was going to mention. Yeah. In uh, terms of indie. It's a big game changer in independent cinema. Yeah. I think that and Reservoir Dogs Even both. though I don't like Clerks that much, but I do like Reservoir Dogs. I think they're both game changers for mm -hmm. independent cinema. Dustin Sells, what do you think about when you think of game-changing films? Well, dear internet, the first thing I want to say is if anything to say about Dalton's suggestion of Spider-Man's a game-changing <laughs> cinematic experience, do let him know. I spent my entire, entire time was talking, listener, looking at Dustin and watching his face contort and trying to make his face soften and convince him that I was right. <laughs> I don't think I did a good job, so tell Dustin he's wrong. He looked like Emily Rose. <laughs> My picks, I'm going to go way, way back and, and just talk about why a couple movies are really, really valuable. Uh, and, uh, and the reason why is just because, again, sometimes there are these film studies sort of assigned watching 
films that you have to look at and you go why dear heavens why do I have to look at this at all and what the, the big name all be all is Citizen Kane I was just thinking that, yeah. and, and Citizen Kane the reason why it's game changing cinema is the same reason why The Matrix is The Matrix made use of bullet time made use of CGI it made use of these sort of spin around individual shot cameras that's why we have Carrie Ann Moss the spin around shot at the very beginning of the film all of that it was absolutely revolutionary in just taking the media and its ability to tell stories in a different direction in the same way Citizen Kane did something crazy called Deep Focus where it had been around but you did not ever usually have film stock that would have the foreground like the cup on the table in absolute focus and then also the background the man standing outside of the window in absolute sharp clear focus it was totally undone and he used depth and space and field in ways that films had never been used before he also did things with camera angles that hadn't been done before if you had a weak diminutive character you shot them from above looking down on them to make them look smaller if you had the overpowering Orson Welles character you shot him from below and he looked like he was overbearing and about to trounce you and no one had been doing this sort of stuff with movies before and then shafts of light and bits of smoke the reason why we have film noir is because of Citizen Kane Citizen Kane basically invented the style before there was the style and so the movie matters and that's why your professor someday is going to make you watch Citizen Kane those things may not seem groundbreaking or earth-shattering to you now but that would sort of be like someone growing up in the 2000s not getting old enough to see rated R movies until later on and finally getting to see The Matrix and being generally unimpressed by just the style of it because everybody including Shrek is doing that now and, and that's the <laughs> point right yeah and so well and you think about the ubiquity of the matrix and the popular discourse over film when you start seeing scenes and, and segments of, of citizen kane uh, at this point in history you realize i have seen this so many times on the simpsons and on rugrats <laughs> there is a rugrats episode that is like basically just citizen kane mm-hmm. i mean that's that's how ubiquitous that film is and right. it's important to keep in mind Right. And so I say that's why, and you should still see it, because it does matter in that sort of historical sense. And it is quite brilliant in in the way it's put together. Another recommend I would make is a genre recommend, just to limit my picks and just get on with the show, is I want to make a horror genre recommend the Game Changer, and that's Alfred Hitchcock's 1960 film, Psycho. Mm -hmm. Changes everything. We always talk about Halloween and the slasher. I say forget that. You've got to look at Psycho. Halloween did something different and did something with the zeitgeist, but they didn't do it until after Black Christmas. Nonetheless, uh, the point is, Psycho is really where it all begins for that sort of slasher genre that would happen in the 80s. It was absolutely seminal and took a long time for that baby to gestate. And uh, that's an important movie, and you should take a look at it. It's another black and white pick. Sorry about that if you don't love that. But nonetheless, it is gorgeous filming, and use of editing is fantastic. You've seen the shower sequence. If not, you should have. And it's good, and you need to take a look at it right away. You know what I thought of that I was I was expecting you to say for some reason? The Wizard of Oz. I love The Wizard of Oz. Yeah, blockbuster, game changer in a, in a blockbustery type way. A game changer in this use of color and I mean again it's not the first Technicolor film but kind of the first one to, to use Technicolor in a way to tell the story as narrative, issue, as narrative mm-hmm. which is something I mean use of color as narrative something we get in the Matrix films and Absolutely. obviously there are these nods buckle up Dorothy because Kansas is going bye bye but I, you know I, I thought about the, the Wizard of Oz a lot every time I watched the Matrix really which mm-hmm. I, I think is in, intentional oh yeah it's a fantastic film I love it 
All right, gentlemen, thank you very much for all of that gameplay and recommendations to take you back in the archives of cinema and see some things that were game changers. We're going to move on now and conclude the show with what's guys fired up this week in popular culture. Hoping to hear some fire from you, gentlemen. Mr. Nick Sanford, are you fired up this week? Yeah, the Hobby Lobby. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to talk about that. Um, I saw a movie called Obvious Child, speaking of Hobby Lobby. Uh, I saw a film called Obvious Child. If you don't know what it is, it's what Juno might have been had it been made now. Anyway, Obvious Child, if you don't know what it is, it's a film about a young female comedian who decides she's not ready for motherhood, and it's, as far as I know, the first major film to use the A-word as kind of its central focus yeah, it's, in a non-judgmental way. As Juno of Juno decided to get an abortion. Pretty much, yeah. And it, and it was a very I, touching... I've been really wanting to see this movie. I, didn't, I saw it last Friday, and I had not heard of it until 45 minutes before I got out of my house to drive to see it. I was just like, it's playing at Quail Springs Mall. I'm going to go check it out, and I'm glad I did. Uh, Jenny Slater is hilarious. She's so funny. I didn't know who she was before this. Oh my gosh, she's I, in so much stuff. I had no idea. And she gave a very, very moving performance, and, I, and it's it had a really strange which I guess I can understand controversial release but I didn't none of that phased me until I started reading on the film afterwards but if you're into daring quirk and it wasn't quirky for the for the sake of being quirky it was quirky as an extension of the human truths or whatever it was after uh, so I would recommend that also um, I read at the very beginning of the recording of this podcast Yahoo is bringing community back for a did he text you yeah yeah for a sixth season, so... Woo! That's really exciting. Yeah! Uh, I've never heard of Yahoo taking over a they Yahoo show. is currently, like, they're getting ready to do an Office-based series, based series. Ooh. Yeah, Yahoo has decided they want to enter the foray of original internet television, so... Yay! I'm also excited about that, Nick. Yeah, I mean, everybody on that listens to the show knows I love community, so that's a big effing deal over here. <laughs> yeah, but that's what I got. Thank you very much, Mr. Nick Sanford. Mr. Dalton Stewart, are you fired up this week? Yeah, I, f- I finished up FX's uh, adaptation, or, or I guess adaptation is the wrong word, uh, extension. They're Fargo series. Uh, it's good. I like it a lot. Uh, I don't like it as much as I like another uh, mini-series, se- mini a season uh, mystery crime drama thing that came out earlier. I'm talking about True Detective. I like True Detective better still. You can't win. Um, but Fargo is pretty solid. Billy Bob Thornton and Martin Freeman just turned in some really fabulous performances, uh, and we get a great performance from newcomer um, who Allison can't remember her last name for some reason, but she plays Detective Solverson and she's fab or Deputy Solverson and she's fabulous, and it's it's funny and interesting in all, a lot of the same ways that the film Fargo is. So I, I recommend you check that out if you get the time. I also saw. Uh, what's become one of the biggest films ever, weirdly, uh, and that's last year's Frozen. I like that movie. A lot. I liked it a lot. Yeah, I, I just happened to watch it uh, with my family. Spent the uh, the day with my my family uh, this weekend, and we decided to watch it because none of us had seen it. And man, that's a good movie. Yeah, it total is. Uh, inversion and subversion and introspective look at uh, Disney as a genre. And Disney Princess Eye, and and how that genre's really kind of been damaging to a whole generation of young men and women who who have had their expectations of life kind of shit on by uh, Disney princess movies, uh, and really I think does something to try and correct that. 
Uh, and also Josh Gad's really funny in it as a snowman. So uh, check that out, man, because if you haven't seen Frozen yet, like me, you've obviously been living under a rock. But, I've been uh, living under a rock. I haven't seen it uh, yet. Yeah. Uh, the rest of the world has, and it's, it's definitely something worth checking out. I'll watch it in the winter. So Dustin Sells, what has you fired up this week in popular fire machines? Uh, a couple things. One of them is quite related to things that I have talked about before. As you all know, I am a big fan of the horror genre and also vampire genres in general. I finally got around to catching Byzantium, starring Swarcy Runnin or whatever you say her name. I don't even know, and I don't. It's like Shersha. It's uh, not yeah. how it's spelled. And also Gimma Horton. And yeah, yeah, and, and her, and also the little redheaded guy from David Cronenberg's son's opening film, Viral. He's also an he antiviral. Antiviral. He should have been one of the Weasleys. It would have been better. Much better. Nonetheless, the uh, movie was fantastic. It was one of the best produced set design films I've seen in a long time. It was a film with romance and vampires without it being the romantic sort of stalker vampire Dracula thing. And I like that, and I'm hoping for good things for the genres. It kind of gets back to its gothic roots. The other thing that's vampiristic that has got me excited about is... Luke Evans, Dracula Untold, coming up in ah, This trailer is so awesome! It's so bad, it's oh. amazing. Uh, are you excited too? I am very pumped about this. <laughs> it looks... Because I want to see that sort of soldier soul for whatever kind of loyalty reasons and you become a monster sort of movie. Again, I'm sick of Stalker Dracula. And uh, this, this makes me very happy. I love Richard Matheson, but forget you for doing that to us all. And making every vampire adaptation thereafter that same stinking story. Nick doesn't feel quite as enthusiastic. I'm just about tired it. of why does everything need an origin? That's what ruined Willy Wonka. The latest one is ooh, let's find out what makes him tick. I don't want to know what makes Dracula tick. That's what engages my imagination. I don't. I mean, the book. Uh, I'm going to credit Andrew McDonald for bringing this information to me. The book, the novel itself, written by whoever. Bram Stoker. Yeah, public education failed me. Uh, goes out of its way to not give you any backstory on why he is the way he is. Yep. You can blame Francis Ford Coppola for mixing uh, Vlad uh, Dracul's real life with uh, Dracula of lore. So this is not the first time this has been done. It looks wacky and silly and awesome. Yeah. And it's something different with vampires, which, yeah, I'm so... I, you know, it's not Twilight's fault because these lame vampires have existed before. I like my vampires like I like my great white sharks. Soulless and evil. But uh, to Nick's point, I, I, I feel the same way about origin stories, but what I'm more excited about is just the transition in direction, and that m may be some sort of generative force in doing something different with the Dracula character, and that pleases me. And so, no, I, your point is well taken, sir, and I don't think you're wrong in so saying. Plus, sword fights are always bitching. There is that. Last two things I'm fired up about are David Cronenberg things. I have two things about which I'm fired up. Currently available on YouTube is a nine-minute short film by Mr. Cronenberg called The Nest. It is the most disturbing thing I've seen in a long time, and literally nothing happens. We don't know if Cronenberg is actually going to be the plastic surgeon who's going to perform a breast removal operation, or if he's a psychologist just trying to get inside this chick's head. But all we see is a face camera talking to her about what's going on inside of her breast. It is the craziest, <laughs> most upsetting, Weird. disturbing thing. Oh, this sounds like my family reunions. I can't wait. I have seen in a long time. Oh. It is a not safe for work. What, Download, dear listener. It's nine minutes long. Nothing crazy happens. Just Cronenberg being Cronenberg. She's topless because she's getting an exam. But that's it. And it's just him talking to her and crazy. 
and it is really, really upsetting. <laughs> and I love me some crazy body horror David Cronenberg coming back. The other thing I'm fired about is a David Cronenberg film that's actually coming out very, very soon. It is called Map to the Stars. Mm-hmm. It's going to be starring the great Julian Moore, Mia Wachowski. And I'm very excited to see this. It seems like he's going to make his Mulholland Drive. The connections between Cronenberg and David Lynch are coming closer and closer and closer as time goes on. And I'm very excited about how this is finally coming together. And I want to see this movie very badly. And that's what's got me fired up this week in pop culture. Dear listener, we thank you for listening to us throughout all of this programming that we've brought to you this fine evening or whatever time of day it happens to be when you listen through your generic podcasting non-endorsed device and we ask you now to give us opportunities to keep talking with you about the movies and you can do that through with us all through twitter nick are you on twitter where you at i'm on twitter you can find me at uh nick underscore sanford thank you very much where you at dalton i can be found on twitter at doll underscore stew as in a doll made of stew parts Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> I can also uh, be found on Letterboxd, which I'm going to keep bringing up until they give us a sponsorship. Uh, because, one, I believe in their website, and I think they're doing something awesome and interesting. And, and two, I'm a big prostitute. There is that. Uh, I'm also on Letterboxd. You can search my name and find me there. My name is Dustin Sells. You can find it on Twitter at Dustin underscore Sells, S-E-L-L-S. I'm also on Tumblr at iProtein. .tumblr.com. I have fun over there on the Twitter, and I, I say more movie things there than I do probably anywhere else in the means of social media by which I am available. And, dear listener, as you keep the conversation going, and as you take a look at other movies and the recommends that we've made this week, we have to get you geared up for next week's film. So next week we're going to be taking a look at a little film that you may have heard of. It's, called, it's another game changer. It's called The Dark Knight, directed by a man called Christopher Nolan. He's made some waves. It stars a uh, cat called Heath Ledger you may have heard of. And the movie is kind of amazing, and we're going to do some analysis with that sucker, and it's going to be lots and lots of fun. Until then, what you need to do, dear listener, is you need to watch movies. Watch lots of movies and watch with people that you care about, that you're safe to have a conversation with about how these movies reflect on life and vice versa, and help us to live more meaningful, more thoughtful, and more clearly focused lives, because that's what the movies are really about. And until then, we'll see you next time.
Chief Soul!